0: Hey, good morning, y'all. Good morning, good morning, good morning. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor, and uh, it is so good to see you guys. Uh, This morning, we're going to be continuing in the book of Romans, so go ahead and grab your Bibles. Open up your apps. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. We're going to be going over to Romans chapter 7 this morning, Romans chapter 7. Uh, I believe that is page 943 in our pew Bibles. I'm not positive. It's what it is in mine. Most ESVs match. Um, while you're turning over there, let me, let me remind you, last week uh, we dipped our toe back into this to kind of kind of reintroduce us back into the book of Romans. we spent the last couple of years just kind of engaging and, uh, and dealing with it. And, and last week I, I introduced this metaphor of, of a threshold, right? This idea of a transitionary space between two significant spaces. The whole purpose of a threshold is to cross over, right? A threshold isn't a place you want to camp out. Threshold isn't a place that's that's like enjoyable to to you know spend an extended season, um, but uh, thresholds are are uh, necessary because it is through the threshold that we transition metaphorically from one significant stage of life to another. It is through the tra- threshold that we transition through one uh, experience of maturity into the next right and some thresholds are, are predictable and and honestly enjoyable uh graduations certain birthdays uh your first job right y- your marriage um there are a lot of those and and some of them are really really significant right when you get married man things change on the other side right when you have a kid things change on the other side some some are less significant right when you graduate you're just kind of the same person now you got to find a job right it's 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 like okay i Still got to do the same exact things, but now I got to figure out a way to make money. Um, But the most difficult and the most painful and the most important transitions in our lives are the ones that are deeply personal, emotional, and spiritual. The ones that require not simply a change of circumstances, but a change of heart. We simply cannot get through the transition unless we change. And often, that's why many people end up camping out in the place of the threshold because they are resisting the change they need to embrace to grow. And that is one of the most miserable places to camp, because you can't go back to what was, and everything in you is fighting not to go forward to what will be. And so these thresholds, some of them honestly feel like death when you're on the front side of it. Uh, But as the Lord is leading, often when we Pass through that, we discover a renewed experience of the resurrection on the other side. God is leading us through these spaces, and often there are parts of us that have to die. There are things that we think are are non-negotiable about ourselves that we have to let go. Things that we think are are the very foundation of our security or identity or our 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 comfort or or our worthiness of love that we have to look at and examine and realize they're the very things that are actually robbing us of joy and robbing God of His glory in our lives. And we have to let those things die to push forward into the freedom that God has for us. Um, Romans 7 is an exploration of thresholds. And in Romans 7, Paul invites us in Uh, He kind of pulls back the curtain of his own heart, invites us into one of those critical and painful thresholds in his own life, one of the most significant spiritual thresholds he's had to cross and has to continue crossing um, as he keeps rediscovering how the grace of God invites him into a new kind of life. Now this week, we're going to be looking at the foundation of that experience, right? We're going to get into it. Last week, we looked at the, the broad overview of the chapter. This week, we're going to look at the theological foundation necessary to understand in order to move into the personal transformative experience of crossing over these redemptive thresholds. So this week, we're going to be looking at the threshold of redemptive history, how God has worked through history, and and ultimately, while He hasn't changed, so let me put it this way, there's only been one way to God at all times in, in all of human history, and that's by grace. It doesn't matter, right? Abraham, our great father, Paul made that argument in Romans 4, right? Abraham was justified by faith, by trusting the promise of God. He received grace and he received it through faith. There's only been one way to God. But he has worked through different covenants in redemptive history. The two most significant being the covenant of law, the Mosaic covenant, and the covenant of grace, the new covenant established through the work of Christ this morning. Paul's going to be talking about that transition and how that transition is critical for our ability to personally grow through these uh, spiritual transitions, right? So let's start by reading our passage. I'm going to read a series of passages along with it, just to remind us. And so uh, before we get to Romans 7, I'm going to ask you to turn back. We're going to start in Romans 3. You're like, holy cow, we're going way back. Yes, we are. Uh, We're going to look in Romans 3, I'm going to start with verses 19 and 20, and at this point I'm going to read them without comment. We'll come back to them in a few moments, right? So starting in Romans 3, verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those that are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. All right, Romans 5. Take a look at verses 20 and 21. Romans 5, 20 and 21. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now take a look in chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. Six, fourteen, 14, and 15. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to continue in sin? Are we to sin because we are no longer under law, but under grace by no means? All right. Now we come to chapter 7. Okay? So let's read chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those of you who know the law, not in the old way, of the written code, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, y'all, Paul has been creating a progressive case, as I've just highlighted a little bit, through the book of Romans. One of the sub-themes in the book of Romans is is this uh, uh, progressive revealing of how uh, the Jewish people specifically, but all of us, are to relate to the Mosaic law, why God gave it and its function in redemptive history. Why did God give it if it couldn't save people? What was its purpose? How did it work, right? And Paul's been creating this progressive case that believers, that it had a specific function in redemptive history, but believers have been set free from that function. That believers are now dead to the authority and the power of the Mosaic Covenant. Now, for Paul's Jewish readers, this would have been Uniquely sensitive and revolutionary, right? In 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 Rome, the city of Rome, uh, by this time, we've talked about this. the, the, the church was predominantly Gentile because uh, the Jews had been exiled from the city for a series of uh, for a, for a period of time uh, because they had been blamed for certain social unrest. Um, they had been allowed to return, but during that time, the church had transitioned from being predominantly Jewish to being predominantly Gentile or non-Jewish, right, Roman. Uh, And so the Jews would have been a minority, from what we can tell, in, in the church. But as Paul is writing, those Jewish readers, man, they would have been uniquely sensitive to this. Why? Because the law was the foundation of their cultural identity. The law determined everything a Jewish person did, from what they wore, to how they did business, to how and when they ate, to what kind of food they could eat, uh, to to when they could work and when they could rest, and who they could could hang around with, and, and what kind of ceremonial cleansings you had to go through because you broke a law or you got exposed to things you weren't supposed to. The Jewish readers, every aspect of their life was influenced and controlled by the law. It, 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 it was absolutely foundational to their culture, but also their corporate identity. You know what I'm saying? Like, like when a Jewish person saw another Jewish person in the street, they had a shared experience. <laughs> An intensely shared experience, right? You ever been in a place where you just felt a little off balance? Like when I was in, in uh, Kyrgyzstan visiting a team that we had embedded there for a series. Uh, I was there for, I don't know, 10 days, something like that. Like after a little while, you just feel so other, right? Right? Because everybody's looking at you weird, you can't really, t- and then suddenly you hear your own language being spoken. I don't know if you've ever been in an environment like that, but holy cow, everything in you is like, where is this person? I must speak to them immediately, right? I need to have a, who are you and where are you from? Because because you speak English, right? And and, and there's this sense like, like, oh my goodness, okay, you're, you're from Europe and you're over here doing this backpack, but we're still... You're still way closer culturally to me than anything I've experienced over the last 10 days. So, so culturally, I want you to get this, personally, corporately, culturally, the law would have been their shared identity, right? Um, and, and many of the Romans would have been familiar with that, not simply because they knew Jewish people, but because many of them probably had become proselytites before they became believers in Jesus. In other words, they became Jewish before they became Christian, right? So there there were Gentile people who worshipped in Jewish spaces because they had become proselytes in that process, right? But even if they hadn't, they would have understood the dynamics of the law uh, simply from human culture, right? The Roman culture was a a shame-honor culture. It was driven to avoid shame and to gain honor, and you did that by accruing works of honor, by building your name. So, in other words, you had to, to work hard to gain credit. You had to work hard to get recognized. You had to work hard to get a name in your community. You had to work hard, right? It was this sense that I better invest if I want the payoff. In this culture, if I if I want a taste of immortality, which in the Roman mind would have been having a statue erected to you or having a, a precinct of the city named after you, I have to work incredibly hard. Hard to gain immortality, I have to rise above my peers I have to, I have to overcome my own weaknesses. I have to earn this right um, to understand how to engage genuine change paul 's readers and us included needed to understand the foundation of that change, right they, they needed to understand what it meant, one, that they were fundamentally freed from the authority of the law and two what that meant for them in an effort to explain the believers new freedom paul lays out an analogy right a a, a metaphorical or a symbolic comparison right in this analogy our relationship to the law um, as as people is related to uh, a woman's relationship to her dead husband that's the first three verses, right? That's kind of the analogy that that Paul lays out, right? And it's worth noting right up front that Romans 7 is one of the worst places to turn to to try to get your theology of marriage, right? Paul is not teaching about marriage here, you know what I'm saying? Like, he's not setting out to lay out principles of marriage. He is very simply taking a very small aspect of Jewish law about marriage and applying it very specifically uh, in an analogy to, to make a point, right? So, uh, I, I just want to kind of make that out. Paul isn't laying down principles of marriage. He is drawing on well-known principles to make a point, right? Not about marriage, but about um, our relationship to the law. So look again at verses 1 through 3. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those of you who know the law, so he is speaking predominantly to his Jewish hearers, right, uh, and the proselytes, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives, right? For a married woman is bound to her, by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage, right? This is like common sense, right? You're not married to a corpse, right? You, you, you don't have to have fidelity with a, a dead person, right? As long as they're alive and you have entered into covenant oneness with them, you are bound to them. But when they die, you are set free. Verse 3, accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, right? So, so if she, while he's alive, if she just checks out and goes and moves in with another dude, She's an adulteress, right? But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress, right? Okay, duh. It's <laughs> the beauty of an analogy. He is like drawing out the simplest principles. Like, don't you agree with this? Of course we do. All right. Uh, let me let me make this clear to you. Right? It's pretty simple. A woman is legally bound to her husband in marriage as long as he's alive. When he dies, she's free to marry somebody else. All right? Are we all there together? Okay, so we're we're up to that point in the analogy. All right, verse 4 completes the analogy, right? In verse 4a, likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ. All right, this is where things start getting a little weird. Um, And we see that that this is far from what we call a perfect analogy, right? Because when we read the first three verses... Um, we're kind of the wife, and we're waiting for our husband to die so that we can be set free. And in verse 4, things shift. Likewise, my brothers, you have died. Now you're the one that died. You're not waiting for your husband to die. You have died to the law through the body of Christ. It wasn't even you who died. It was Christ who died, and you died with Christ when he died on the cross. Okay, I'll explain why Paul is using such a wonky analogy in a minute, okay? Because it is wonky. Uh, and people sometimes get hung up on that, like, like Paul, what in the world, dude? You're such a careful thinker. Why would you create an analogy that everything shifts in the application, okay? I think there's a reason uh, for that. Um, but, but what I want you to catch is this. While it's not a perfect parallel, it is a perfect point. And the point is clear. The law was a covenant in force with the nation of Israel, right? When we go to the Old Testament, you read Exodus 19 and 20. Where, where the Mosaic law is established. God shows up on Mount Sinai and through Moses says to the nation of Israel, hey, y'all, I got a good idea here. I will bless you if you obey this law. And if, I, if you break it, I will curse you. What do y'all think? Do you want to you enter into this covenant with me? And all the people were like, yes, we will do this thing. And God's like, cool. All right, here's the down payment of the law. I'll just give you in Exodus 20, the first 10 commandments. The foundation of everything else. It ends up, I don't know, being somewhere between five and 600 commandments. But um, uh, here's, the, here's the down payment. Here's the first 10, okay? And before Moses is even down from the mountain with the 10 commandments, they've already broken them. They've already put all their gold in, and melted it down and created a, a golden calf to worship, right? They broke the law before they even received it. It was a covenant that said, I will bless you if you obey, and I will curse you if you disobey. The promise of blessing was true and genuine. But it was a promise no one ever received. Because no one could keep the law. It was not a covenant that anyone could keep. Because ultimately, while the law could tell your heart what to do, it couldn't change your heart so it could do it. All right? So no Jewish person ever born was able to claim the blessing of the law. Until Jesus. Jesus. Jesus was born a Jewish man under the law. He was born under the covenant of his ancestors. He was born under the weight of obedience to the law to claim its blessing. And he's the first man who ever completely fulfilled the law and was able to claim its blessing. So he did, right? As someone who fulfilled the law, he claimed its blessing. Now, here's what I want you to catch. Once he claimed its blessing, he fulfilled the law. The law became like a deed on a home that's been paid off. It has historical importance and it had legal importance, but it is no longer binding because it's actually been fulfilled, right? Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill the law. He did. He fulfilled the law. He didn't abolish it, he fulfilled it. He, 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 he was the embodiment of everything the law demanded so that he could claim its blessing. And so therefore, the law was no longer a covenant in force. It had paid itself out. And Jesus was the one who received the payment, right? Now, what's beautiful is that Jesus didn't just obey the law and receive its blessing. He then voluntarily died under its curse. The law says, cursed is every man who dies on a tree. Paul uses this argument in the book of Galatians to show very clearly that Paul not only received the blessing of the law, but then died under its curse. Why? As our hero, as our substitute. Not because he had earned the curse of the law, he had earned its blessing. But then he voluntarily stepped into the place of the one who had earned its curse. Why? So that he could be our substitute and die. He bore the weight of our guilt so that we could receive the benefit of his obedience. He died in our place as our substitute and our Savior, taking the curse of the law so that we could be his partners in blessing. His death becomes our death when we believe in him. Now, Paul has laid this theology out pretty carefully up to this point already in the book of Romans, um, but that's why he can assert that when Christ died, we died in him because he didn't die for himself, he died for us. When he died, he died our death. As our substitute, he took the weight of our rebellion against God, our breaking of the law, and died under its condemnation, fulfilling the justice that God demands for our cosmic treason, right? So take a look at 4b, right? Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another. So that, I love that little phrase. It means there's a reason behind this. There's a purpose why God did this. This isn't just a theological point Paul wants to make or that that God wants to make. It is a deeply personal point. So that, why did God do this? God did it for a good reason, to set us free from a bad marriage to our sin so we could be bound to Him. I want you to recognize what's happening here. He's not simply saying this is an issue of justice. He's not saying this is simply an issue of theology. He's not simply saying this is an issue of redemptive history. He's saying this is an issue that is deeply and profoundly personal. God desires to be bound to you. And He did the work necessary that he might be, right? Now look at why in 4C. Sorry, my letters. (laughs) They're my little reminders of which part of the verse to read, okay? Likewise, my brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. Notice the focus now isn't on the dead body, it's on the resurrected one, right? He died so that we could die with him and he was raised so that we could be bound to him, right? In order... Now we have another purpose statement. In order that we may bear fruit for God. I don't want you to miss this. Why did God do this? Because God's primary motivation was love. Justice is important. Truth is important. But, our, but God's primary motivation was love working through justice, love working through truth. It was fundamentally God's love. There is a reason that Paul uses the marriage analogy, even though it's flawed. He knew it would be flawed, but he wanted to use it. Why? Because the marriage analogy embeds this concept that God longs to be bound to you. In the same way, a husband and a wife come together in covenant oneness, exclusive covenant oneness, giving themselves to one another freely and fully. And as broken as that relationship is in this world, we all understand its potential beauty. And I say potential because there is no perfect marriage in this world. But we know the promise that's embedded in that beautiful promise, that beautiful invitation. And that's what Paul is saying God longs for with us, a a, a bond of covenant oneness, of intimate knowledge. We sometimes flippantly say, have a good day, God loves you. But if we can be flippant about the love of God, we don't understand the profound implications of the fact that the creator God, the justice, the the just God, the sovereign God, the holy God of the universe, longs, aches for intimacy with you, for oneness with you. God loves you and he longs for union with you and he longs for you with a deep and intimate longing. Why? So that you can bear fruit for God. So that you can bear fruit for God. Some people think about, you know, this, you know, oh, God wants me to bear fruit for him as if this were, you know, that God was somehow just a primarily moral being and Uh, You know, in in his holiness, he's cold and without passion. You know, he loves because he chooses to love, but that doesn't mean he actually feels love. And, And what he wants from us in fruit is a little bit like a farmer wants from his fields. He wants a reward for his investment. I want you to be fruitful because I've paid so much, I expect a return on my investment. We, we, we kind of picture God as this, as this kind of cold, holy, distant God who is looking and, and is kind of a fruit inspector. You know, He's showing up to find out if, if the quantity and the quality of the fruit in our lives somehow merits the investment He has made in us. That reveals a fundamentally faulty view of God. God's holiness is anything but cold and distance. His his holiness is fundamentally relational. His holiness is infused with love. In fact, it is His love that makes His moral perfection holy. God doesn't just love because he sovereignly chooses to. He loves because he is love. He is the embodiment and the eternal experience of love. Love is not a, a theological construct or an a, a, a abstract philosophical idea to God, it is his continual personal experience. It's one of the reasons that the doctrine of the Trinity is so profoundly beautiful. Because in the doctrine of the Trinity, God reveals to us that He is not simply the idea of love, He is the experience of love, eternally. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, knowing and being known, giving and receiving. And He deeply, profoundly wants to invite us in to that glorious dance that is at the heart of His being. The fruit He longs for in our lives is like the fruit that results from marriage. The fruit of love. The fruit that is both the result of and, and produces intimate oneness. The kind of fruit that isn't just an offering to a distant God to justify our claim to His love, but the kind of fruit that is mutually enriching. In glory to God and in good to, to us, God did this to free us from our need to perform to be loved from the law that that demands obedience before you receive blessing so that we could be freed to receive love and in receiving love to learn how to love and return and learning how to love and return to have the fruit of love produced in our lives. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. This shift away from the performance of the law to relating in love changes everything. And that's the point, y'all. That's the point. The way we relate to God, the way we relate to ourselves, the way we relate to our sin, it is all fundamentally different now. Now, Paul highlights this with one more comparison. Take a look at verses 5 and 6. In verse 5, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. We're going to come back to that, break that that down. Verse 6, But now we are released from the law. Having, been, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. All right, to understand verse 5, we need to understand it in the context of this sub-theme that Paul has been developing in relation to the law. So now we're going to go back and talk a little bit about those previous verses, okay? Why did God give the law, the Mosaic law? What was its purpose and what was its function, right? Let me remind you, Romans 3.20, right? Romans 3.20. Romans um, yeah we got it right here okay I'm going to read 19 but 320 is the focus now we know that whatever the law says it speaks to those that are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped so the law doesn't just condemn people out there it speaks to people in here right the Jewish people had a wonderful way of finding all the ways everybody else fell short of the law and then finding all the ways they were justified by the law right? And and we all know that double standard. Let's not be hypocrites. We all know what it's like to find other people's faults and only focus on our own successes, right? They were great at that. He's like, look, whatever the law says, it says it to everybody, y'all, right? It doesn't justify you and condemn others. It, It says what it says so that the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. The law was never given to justify us, to make us right or to fix us. Why? Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law was given not to make us right, but to show us we were wrong. The law was given to show us not that we could fix ourselves, but we needed to be fixed. Not so that we could rescue ourselves, but to highlight the fact that we needed to be rescued. All right, 520 and 21. 520 and 21. Now the law came in, in the historical redemptive history. There came a point where God initiated the covenant of law. The law came in at that point. God created that covenant. Why? To increase the trespass. <laughs> right? We talked about this. To increase sin. Right. God gave the law to actually increase sin. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Right? So, so the law was given to show us our sin, And part of the way it does that is by increasing our sin. Like, the the law doesn't fix the problem, it makes it worse. Okay? Now, Romans 6, 14 and 15. Put it on the screen behind me. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law but under grace. Notice the way he weds that idea of being in sin and under law. And this is in in Romans 6, after he's already established that this this is part of being in Adam. We'll talk about this in a moment, right? So, So sin will have dominion over you, since you're not under law, but under grace. You have a different master. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. The law came in to the insane asylum and made insane people worse. See, in the insane asylum, people thought they were finding the fullness of life in their jobs, in their relationships, in their pursuits of success, in the amount of people that liked them, in the number of people who followed them, and the number, in, in, in the amount of money they had in their bank account, that they were, they were finding their significance, their security, their approval, and their worthiness of love, and their rest, In all of these things that couldn't give it. That's the insane asylum of the human experience right? Somehow if I have more money, I'm more secure. Yeah, I hate to tell you this. That's not the way it works, right? Well, no, I can actually build more walls. I can can have more barriers. I can be more. You're right. You're right. And maybe you can go your whole life and never see a single person who wants to harm you. But guess what? At the end of the day, you're still going to die. You cannot fix your own problem, Right? And the reality is, the more money you have, the more anxious you're going to become. We already know this. The very things that we think are going to solve our problems set loose a whole host of new problems in our lives. That's why there's this record of people who win the lottery and end up committing suicide. Right? It happens. It's why people get incredibly famous, the very thing we think we want, and they go insane. Right? They're some of the most emotionally and mentally imbalanced people around. Listen, it's an insane asylum. No one has ever gotten the promise through these activities, but we still keep chasing the activities because we have no other choice. The law came in to the insane asylum to make insane people aware of their insanity by making the problem worse. And Paul's like, okay, so if law increases sin, should we sin more because there's more grace? He's like, what? What? He's not saying, how dare you? He's saying, why would you? You've been delivered from the asylum. Your eyes have been opened. You now see what gives life. Why would you go back to the pretending and the performing? Why would you use an open door to freedom as an excuse not to go free? Let me show you this diagram again. I showed you this in, in, I think in Romans 5 is where I introduced this, and then in Romans 6 we talked about it again. Uh, but in Romans 5, there's this fundamental comparison between the two representative heads of the human race the first Adam and the last Adam. Adam, who sinned and rebelled against God, and Jesus, who obeyed and didn't rebel against God, right? Uh, but Paul laid out a theological argument for Jesus as a new Adam, the last Adam. In fact, the last Adam we'll ever need because he succeeded in all the places the first Adam failed, right? So our first head, our first representative head of the human race failed. Jesus came and succeeded, right? In Adam, when he uses that phrase, in Adam, it's Paul's shorthand to describe all of humanity outside of Christ, the insane asylum of people trying to find The fullness of life apart from the God who gives it. And when he uses the phrase in Christ, it is his shorthand to describe us when we've believed in Jesus and by faith have been moved, right? We're no longer in Adam, we're in Christ. This is not who we are, it's who we were. Not because we earned our way out, but because he died, broke out, and rose again and now invites us into the benefit of that death and resurrection. I want you to notice which circle the law is in. Paul makes it very clear that the law was given to exist and to function in this realm. The law was given to increase sin and magnify the effects of death. To awaken our need for grace for deliverance, so that we would abandon our self-salvation projects and our self-improvement projects and instead rest on his salvation project. Now, I want you to catch this. It doesn't mean the law is sinful. The law is perfect and good and holy. The problem isn't with the law. The problem is with the hand that takes hold of the law. The law is a perfect scalpel that could be used to bring life. The problem is we're, we're blind surgeons stabbing away. A tool that that was glorified God and was perfect in its representation became a tool of death in our hands, right? Paul's way of describing this at the beginning of Romans 8 is the law weakened by the flesh, right? The law was good and holy and just. The problem was with the heart that was taking hold of the law. So God didn't give us the law to deliver us from the realm of sin and death. He gave it to make us aware that we needed to be delivered. And when Jesus was born as a son of Adam, A son of Abraham, a son of Moses, he did it to deliver us from the realm of sin and death, including the authority of the law. The Mosaic law he fulfilled, and it now has no authority. So in verse 5, for when we were living in the flesh, this is Paul's way of describing us in Adam. Right when we were living in the flesh. um, The flesh is the internal dynamic that causes worldliness. Remember, worldliness are the systems that we create as people, individuals, but also as cultures to find the fullness of God apart from the God who gives it. We find ultimate meaning in the world instead of in the creator of the world. All cultures do this. All humans do this. The flesh is that internal dynamic of rebellion that causes us to work together to create this illusion, to create the asylum. We've built our own asylum, and we've done it together because of this internal need to rebel against God. The flesh is that internal desire to compete with God, to be equal with God, to be over God, to be like God instead of created in the image of God. The flesh is that internal sinful drive to be independent from God. Our desires... Our fundamental heart desires are disordered because of the flesh, or the flesh, I would say, is the, ma- uh, the manifestation of those desires, right? So let me just remind you, right? You have desires, good desires for significance. Don't shame yourself for wanting to be important. That, that's a God-given desire. You were designed to share in the glory of God. For security, that's a God-given desire to be safe, for, for approval, Right? to be worthy of love. That's a God-given desire to, to feel safe in other people's love and in the love of a community and the love of others, right? And And a desire for rest, right? Don't... To be able to not just be a producer, but a rester, somebody who can genuinely be refreshed and renewed, right? These are God given desires. The problem is, these God given desires that were designed to be fulfilled in the presence of God now must be fulfilled in the things that God created instead of the God who created them. These disordered desires don't point in the right direction anymore. They're good desires, but the good desires are disordered, so they point us to bad things, things that can't satisfy them, things that compete with God instead of our God. And that's what Paul calls sinful passions, right? Look again. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, our disordered desires, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death our sinful passions aroused by the law. We're at work in our members. The law can't change your disordered desires. It can highlight how they're disordered, but it can't change their disorder. It can't fix the underlying problem. So what does it do? It simply stirs up the problem. It arouses the desires that are already disordered. That's what the law does. Right, for some of you, that, that, that means that, well, for all of us, I think it's more of a spectrum, but, but at times what that means is that it's going to cause you to crave what was forbidden. Like cattle in a field with a fence bounding it in, we become convinced that the best grass is on the other side of the fence. And so we just push on the fence, and we strain as far as we can, and at times, if we, if we, if we can, we even break out we think the fullness of God is going to be found in what God has forbidden. We think the fullness of life is going to be found because we hadn't even thought about that weakness in the fence until the law said, hey, don't push on the fence right there. And we're like, "Mm, why? There must be really good grass on the other side of the fence right there. Never thought about that. Now my imagination kicks in, my disordered desires light up, and I'm like, "Mm, I want that, right? Now some of you aren't like that. Some of you aren't fence pushers. Some of you aren't out on the edge. Some of you are as close to the center as you can possibly get. You won't step within 20 feet of that fence. Once the law kicks in and tells you that's off limits, you're like, yeah, that's off limits, buddy. Right? You're rule keepers. Right? (laughs) But you don't keep the rules out of humble love in response to God. You keep the rules because you're desperately afraid. You keep the rules to justify your existence. You keep the rules to make you right because you are afraid that if you break the rules, you will be rejected and unworthy of love. You keep the rules because you are terrified of what life without rules would look like or feel like or mean. Everything in you feels like it would be crushed because you need to prove yourself. You need to establish yourself. You need to justify yourself. And so you stay right in the center You won't go within 20 feet of that fence, but man, you will judge every single person who's not only at the fence pushing, but walking near it. (laughs) Look at that person, right? Because what ends up happening is in our areas of obedience, we can't help but become judgmental of people that we see disobeying. And and, and in our own ways, we'll find ways of justifying it. Hey, let let me just give you some good advice. Let me just help you out. Don't you want to be more like me? Because I'm over here, look, I'm safe. And don't you want to be safe like me, right? We can all find all kinds of ways for our pride to be covered up in concern or whatever. But at the end of the day, it is this sense that I'm getting it right and you're getting it wrong and and I'm terrified. Right? The law comes in, whether through obedience or disobedience, and it stirs up the disordered desires toward sin. Listen, y'all. We're not going to get the fullness of God by rebelling against God. We're not going to get the fullness of life by breaking the rules, right? God is the one who gave us all good gifts. And then he set up boundaries saying, here's how you get to the goodness and the gift. And and you're not going to get to the goodness and the gift by breaking the boundaries he created to keep you in the goodness, right? That's just going to unleash all kinds of death in your life, all kinds of hurt and sorrow and isolation and desolation, right? We know that. But you know what? You're not going to get to the fullness of God through obedience either i tell you something, y'all. God is not primarily interested in your obedience. He is not interested in you becoming moral beings. He's interested in your love. He's interested in the heart of your desires, not simply the manifestation of the behaviors that come out of them. There is an obedience that is born in hell, and it stinks. God. Because it is about self-righteousness and self-protection and self-establishment and self-improvement and self-salvation. God isn't interested in obedience by itself. He is interested in love that leads to submission. Because love always leads to submission. There is an obedience that doesn't flow from gratitude to God's love. It flows from an expression of self-love, and it becomes my path to the fullness of life, my path to fixing myself to be better than I was and subtly better than you are. And that kind of obedience, in the end, hates grace. Because that kind of obedience is all about earning and meriting and measuring up. That kind of obedience fears grace and resents it, because grace gives freely what it's trying to earn, and it honors those that it thinks should be condemned. Y'all, the law aroused sin in our members to bear fruit for death. That's what I'm describing. (laughs) Let me take us to verse 6, but now. Two of my favorite verses in all scripture, two words, but now, That's what, that was the hell that we were condemned in. That was the, the, the cul-de-sac of self-effort and self-destruction that we were trapped in. But now, but now, but now we are released from the law. Having died in Christ to that which held us captive. That abusive husband so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code, but now I am in Jesus. And instead of working under the law to earn, I rest in the spirit to receive. Instead of fixing myself for God, I rest in what God has done to fix me. I receive through grace imputed righteousness and live in the power of resurrection. Do you understand this is a fundamentally different way of doing life? Do you see this? It's a fundamentally way of doing religion. It's a fundamentally different way of approaching spiritual transformation, of of personal growth, of our need to relate to one another and ourselves and our sin in this world. It is a fundamentally different paradigm for life. We have an entirely new dynamic at work in our relationship with God, with ourselves, in our relationship with others, and, and, and ultimately even to our sin, right? It is the paradigm of love, not law of resting, not performing. And it changes everything. So I'm going to end our sermon this morning with a simple series of contrasts. And I'm going to ask you to examine your own heart. Are you a believer who has been freed from the law, still trying to operate under the principle of law in your relationship with God? law the law says measure up to be approved do you feel like God loves you more when you perform better do you feel like you're more worthy of love when you're reading your bible regularly and 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 praying regularly and 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 doing your religious duties regularly and 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 you know you're not doing those bad things you know like you're not doing those things, do you feel like you're more worthy of love? Do you feel, do you in those moments feel more freedom to come into the presence of God? Not because of God's grace, but because you actually feel, you know, I kind of deserve it more. Like now I'm kind of worthy of it. That's the law. The law says measure up to be approved. Grace says you are approved because he measured up. Instead of needing to prove yourself, do you rest in the fact that Christ proved himself for you? That you have an invitation into the throne room of a holy, omnipotent, sovereign, glorious God, not because you deserve it, but because he's invited you. Not because you're covered in your merit, but because you're covered in his. Do you have a a reckless freedom? To come into the presence of God. Even when you feel unworthy. The law says I obey to be accepted. It's a very simple paradigm. If I want to be accepted, I better perform. If I want to be loved, I better measure up. Grace says I submit because I'm loved. I don't obey in order to earn his blessing. I submit because I'm loved, and if he loves me this much, how could his will for me be anything but good? I trust him. I'm not not fighting to earn something from him. I'm resting in what he freely gives me. Law, my success or failure puts me on the roller coaster of pride and shame. You guys know that roller coaster? When you're doing well, man, you're just going up and up and up and up, and you're feeling pretty good about yourself, right? And you start feeling confident to like, yeah, I can, I can sing praise to God, I can pray to God, I can, I might even be able to teach others how to do the same, because I'm feeling pretty good about myself. And if you're like me, you can be closer to God too. Because look how high I am up here. And then. <laughs> you do the stupid thing, you say the stupid thing, you realize you've been doing the stupid thing all along and just didn't notice, right? And you are plunged into shame. How could God even stand me? I can't stand myself. How could God love me? I am so unlovable. I'm so worthless. I'm so... And that self-talk is so revealing, isn't it? That self-talk that I'm unworthy, I'm not... I'm a worm, I am unworthy of love. I don't deserve it. I need to go punish myself for a little while before I can even approach God in prayer. That's the roller coaster of pride and shame. By the way, that never. you can never get off that roller coaster by riding it. <laughs> when you're plunging down in shame, the key isn't to start climbing again. Right? Grace, my struggle to submit increases my gratitude and joy. Do you catch that? My struggle to submit, not my success, my struggle to submit increases my gratitude and joy. Why? Because it's in my struggle I receive grace. Upon grace, upon grace, I never lose it. He never grows distant from me. He never becomes disapproving of me. He never shakes his head and says, that was the last time. There is no last time. My struggle to submit just makes me more amazed at grace. And it increases my gratitude and joy. And by the way, it is that gratitude and joy that changes your heart and increases your ability to submit. Not your self-effort. Not your ability to climb back out of the pit. That's the very dynamic that sets you free. Next one. The law provokes pretending and performing. The law promises a blessing can never give. And so when I'm in the dynamic of the law, I have to pretend to be what I'm not. To myself and to others, I, I have to perform. i got to work harder. i got to do more. Pretending and performing is, is all about, about earning and, and, and image, you know, projecting, like leading out with your resume continually, even to yourself. Grace invites brutal honesty with self and vulnerability with others. Like I can be absolutely, completely transparent with my own motivations. I do good things for bad reasons. And I can admit that and I can see that. And I don't have to be terrified of that. And I don't have to run from that. I-, I do bad things for bad reasons. And I can own that too. I'm no less worthy of grace. Grace. And I am no less holy because my holiness comes through the love of God, not my performance for God. It invites brutal honesty with self. I can actually see myself as I am, which allows me to move into genuine vulnerability with others. Y'all, while we're pretending and performing, it handicaps our ability to have genuine relationships because we can never let others know who we really are. We can only let them meet the image of ourselves. This is who I want to be, ideally. This is who I'm pretending to be. This is who I I desperately need you to think I am. And and that never allows you to move into genuine, vulnerable relationships with others. Man, grace equips you to find genuine community. A community of broken people stumbling forward in grace and delighting in that grace. All right, next one. Law stirs up sin and increases it and makes you despair of self-improvement. That's what we've been talking about all morning. That's what law does. All that self-effort, all that self-improvement, all that self-salvation, man, it it just compiles death. Death, separation, despair, right? Grace stirs up love to increase it and make you humbly confident in His grace. Grace stirs up your love to increase it. God's love provokes your responding love. God's grace frees you from performing to humbly responding. And when you do that, man, you become humbly confident in grace. Not, Not fragilely confident in your image, your performance, your religion. Humbly confident. I am who I am. By the grace of God. I don't need to pretend. I don't need to perform. I don't need to push out a resume. Because at the end of the day, the only resume that matters is Christ's. This is the foundation for the rest of the chapter. Paul lays the theological foundation necessary for us to understand what comes next, which is his revealing of his own personal threshold, which I believe is going to invite us to more boldly cross our own. Let me close this in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for um, grace. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your unconditional, unlimited, unwavering love. It is so hard for us to believe that that's who you are because that's so far distant from who we are and everything we've experienced. Everything in this life teaches us that life is conditional, that we need to be good enough, we need to be pretty enough, we need to be moral enough, we need to be witty enough, we need to be funny enough, we need to be smart enough, we need to be, we need to be rich enough. Everything in this life teaches us that, that when, we, we, when we earn it, we receive it. And that's because everything in this world has been shaped by the insanity of worldliness, has been shaped by the fundamentally broken, disordered desires that drive all of us to try and find the fullness of life apart from you. Jesus, will you awaken us to the beauty of this paradigm shift? Will you awaken us to the beauty of this freedom? Will you awaken us to the beauty of grace? Will you help us to actually believe it? To actually enter into it personally, to rest in it, to become bold? To become bold in our brokenness, bold in our sin, bold in our love, knowing that we are loved. And in loving you in response to your love, to be changed, to be transformed, and to be set free. Lord, again, I pray for my friends. There are many who are are stuck in the threshold right now of significant transitions. Terrified of what's ahead and not able to go back to what was. There are others that that it's coming and they're dreading it. There are others that have just crossed over and and they're just trying to figure out what it all means. Spirit, will you allow them the freedom of finding their joy, not in who they were, not in their resumes, not in their accomplishments, not in their, but, but in who you are. That, Lord, we, we can find our freedom spirit in you and not in the written code. We can, find, we can find the beauty of grace that sets us free. We pray this all in the worthy and mighty name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.